Welcome to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. Happy 4th of July weekend, everyone. It's been a couple weeks since um, I've aired something live. Two weeks ago, I reposted the second half of our interview with Jaime Kirkendall uh, after finding out that some some people were having trouble hearing my voice in addition to his. Usually that'd be good, but since I was asking Jaime questions, I thought it made sense to put it back up, and people seem to have listened to it. So I hope you appreciated that. And then I took last week off for a short vacation to California with my daughter, but we are back now and ready to go. Today, we're going to start a two-part discussion. Uh, two parts on Ruben Zuno Arce. And specifically, who is he and why is he important to this case? So let's start off with why we're going to talk about him. And then we'll talk a little bit more about where we're going to go with this and, uh, and again, why it's important. But why Zuno? So a couple of things. Number one, we know that he was the central figure in two of the three criminal trials in the U.S., or at least a central figure in two of the three criminal trials in the United States. Uh, number two, I've referenced him several times in this podcast and there may be people out there who uh, really don't understand exactly who he is or how he f fits into the situation and into our analysis. So I want to make sure that everybody uh, is clear on that. Number three Season uh, two of Narcos Mexico includes a couple of episodes devoted in large part to Mr. Zuno, and we, we're going to take a look at some of that in a few minutes here. You know, then we have statements about Mr. Zuno in Hector Barreas's book. We have uh, a gratuitous statement, in my mind, by former AUSA Manny Medrano, regarding uh, Mr. Zuno's guilt in The, the Last Narc, the, the docu-series. And then, most importantly, for why it's going on this podcast, why are we going to spend time talking about it today and next weekend? Why are you going to want to listen to it? When we're done talking about it, I think you're going to see how who Mr. Zuno was and how he was treated says a lot about the government's investigations and prosecutions and about the motivations behind some of the people involved in those investigations and prosecutions. Now, full disclosure, I've mentioned this a couple of times. Mr. Zuno's first trial started in May of 1990. Coincidentally, in May of 1990, I began working as a summer associate at a law firm in Los Angeles that was representing Mr. Zuno in that first trial. And as luck would have it, I worked some on that case, went to a lot of the, the trial proceedings while I was a summer associate, and was involved. So I have a personal connection to that trial. Again, uh, I went back to Los Angeles after I graduated from law school in 
August of 1991 and continued to work on the Zuno case and was far more actively involved in the Zuno 2 trial, which ended on December 16 of 1992, which also happened to be my birthday. I then worked on appeals for Mr. Zuno through most of of the 90s and uh, otherwise was involved in the case. Okay, so full disclosure there. I have a personal interest in and personal knowledge of the case. Number two, I met Mr. Zuno on many occasions. I spent a fair amount of time with him at the Metropolitan Detention Center in Los Angeles and uh, met with him on the case, talked to him about his family, things of that nature. I don't think there are a lot of people around who have that experience, and so I think it adds something to it. But I want to make one point very, very, very clear, okay? I am not, I am not trying to use this podcast or this particular episode or the next episode to convince anybody that Zuno was innocent um, or otherwise to advocate for his innocence. All right. I have my own personal views and I'm going to point out some issues and some concerns, which I think lead to larger issues, which are really the ones we're going to talk about more next week. I think we can perhaps dispel a few myths, maybe a few lies and then you can draw your own conclusions, okay? So this is not, this is not um, a Zuno Innocence Project, right? This is a broader scope of who was Mr. Zuno and why is he important. I also want to talk about Narcos Mexico. Um, I know people who consulted in part on uh, some of the the episodes, some of the uh, the seasons of Narcos Mexico. In my personal opinion, season one is much closer to the facts than season two or three. Now, some of that, I think, is to be expected. As things progressed in, in the storyline, there had to be more drama or more... Um, dramatic license because a lot of things just really weren't known. It's not like um, there were, uh, you know, undercover agents involved or, or, or things of that nature. So, so I don't blame anyone necessarily for the depictions in Narcos Mexico, as long as it's recognized that it's a dramatic story. It is not a documentary. I will tell you, the person depicted as Ruben Zuno Arce in Narcos Mexico bears no resemblance to the man I met and knew. There are the the scenes in particular where um, he's trying to reach Felix Gallardo, the military's outside, the DEA's outside of his compound, and he's got women uh, in in the house. He's um, doing cocaine, and he's a sniveling, whiny. I don't even know how to describe him, but sniveling and whiny is is definitely part of it. And that was not Ruben Zuno Arce 
as far as I knew him, in any way, shape, or form. Okay? So, again, I don't have any problem with the Narcos Mexico folks. Just understand that it's a it's a drama. That's not who he was. And, uh, you know, if anybody wants to talk about that particular point at any time, I'm more than happy to do that. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Mr. Zuno. So, and, and I will draw the distinction to Narcos Mexico. Remember in Narcos Mexico, they do point out, which is accurate, that Mr. Zuno's brother-in-law was Luis Echeverria, who was the former president of Mexico. That's correct. They also say that his uncle was the defense minister. That is not correct. Um, Mr. Zuno did come from a prominent family. Uh, His father had been involved in politics. His family owned a lot of businesses, a lot of land. So he definitely, uh, you know, somebody of some note and uh, some reputation. I want to talk for a second about that idea of him being a, of his reputation, if, if there is such a thing, um, of being a drug dealer, active in the drug trade. And I, I want to start with an allegation in um, Hector's book, Agent Boreas's book, The Last Narc, and I'm on page 160. And again, one of the things that I want, want to keep in mind for everybody, it, you know, I'm going to talk about very specific things. I'm going to make certain allegations. I'm going to contest certain points. But when I do it, I'm going to do it with documents. I'm going to do it with evidence, okay? And we're going to read from DEA 6 reports. We're going to read from transcripts in the next two episodes. And I want you to compare what I'm doing with this particular allegation by uh, Hector Boreas. He says, um, Zuno was a well-documented criminal in the files of Mexican law enforcement. Um, he also says, um, it was a known fact that Zuno was one of the most prolific drug producers in Guadalajara. He controlled massive marijuana and poppy cultivation sites in the mountain areas near Mascota, Jalisco, Puerto Varda, etc. As the brother-in-law of the former president of Mexico, he was one of the most well-connected and influential narco-politicos of the 1980s. Okay, let's go back. One of the most prolific drug producers in Guadalajara. There is no evidence to support that and that I'm aware of. None. Zero. And let's look at a couple of things in specific. So you'll remember the book Desperados by Elaine Shannon. Uh, a great book. Okay. Very meticulous in her research. A long book, right? Um I'm flipping through it right now. If you take out the notes, it's 523 pages. Very well documented. Do you know how many times she she talks about Ruben Zunarse in this book? Zero. So in all of her investigation, all of her lead up, 
all of her discussions with her sources, including in the DEA, nothing about Rubens and Arce. And what about at, at the trials? Again, there were two trials. Mr. Zuno was convicted. Again, not gonna not gonna get into that directly. But let's let's look at this. During the trials, there was a great deal of testimony regarding the Zacatecas and Boothville marijuana operations. Lots of evidence regarding uh, Rene Verdugo's marijuana dealings, Operation Padrino. None of them, none, mentioned Zuno's involvement. Okay. DA agent Thomas Gomez testified that he followed some of the major traffickers to, quote, photograph them, record the radio transmissions, and attempt to identify any associates of those traffickers, end quote. Zuno is not mentioned once in Agent Malone's testimony. Lawrence Victor Harrison does testify against Zuno, um, but he testifies that he's, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, but he testifies that he saw him at two meetings in 1983. But he does testify, or did testify, that he monitored the traffickers' radio communications on a 24-hour-a-day basis and overheard, quote, literally thousands of conversations that in one way or another were drug-related. Thousands of conversations. And he says he never once heard Zuno's voice, nor did he hear Zuno's name in any of these communications. Okay? So, we have that. We also have two DEA reports that are fascinating in my mind. So, we have one that is a... Uh, and they may actually be from the same report. It's a little bit hard to to decipher. But here's what we know. One of these reports is dated, or it says revised on 4-30-85. And it basically describes the Rafael Caracantero organization. It describes uh, Caro's background, his lead-up to kind of his involvement in some of the bigger trafficking operations, Etc., etc., and this goes on for 10 pages or so. Um, and it talks about you know things that, that they want to do going forward, uh, as far as investigations, etc., etc. Again, noteworthy that Rubens and Orase's name is not mentioned here at all. Similarly, I have a very large multi-page report that says the following draft report on the drug trafficking operations of the Felix Gallardo organization covers the period 1984 through 1985 and is based upon multiple source information as reported from several DEA field offices in the United States and Mexico. Then if we go in the back, we've got a chart that's really pretty amazing Um, and and a whole description of 
the organ the Felix Garda organization, and they break it down into the marijuana d- division, uh, the poppy heroin division. They've got security division, uh, aviation, uh, offices of legal services, office of security. They refer to Miguel Felix as the chief executive officer. Again, charts, descriptions, lots of, of information. And you know what? Ruben Zunoarce is not named in here at all either. Now, does that mean that Mr. Zuno had no affiliation with the traffickers at any time? No, not suggesting that. Does it mean that, that he couldn't have been involved in, in uh, drug trafficking at some point in his life? Doesn't mean that at all. But... Do you find it at all plausible that he was, as Hector Berea says, you know, one of the major traffickers in Guadalajara? Doesn't sound right, does it? And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Now, Mr. Zuno was involved in a 1978 shooting where two MFJP officers were killed. A little bit of of, uh, uncertainty regarding the situation. At one time or another, Mr. Zuno had said that he did, in fact, shoot them, but that it was in self-defense. There were also various times when uh, his chauffeur was or driver was implicated in the shooting. Nevertheless, as a result of this shooting, Mr. Zuno left uh, Mexico for large period of time and established residence in San Antonio regularly flew back and forth uh, between San Antonio and Mexico. And then when we, when he did go to Mexico, he had a residence in Mascota and not necessarily in Guadalajara. Okay. Now Mascota is a small town. Even today it's about 15,000 people and it's located between Guadalajara and Puerto Varda. In 1985, Muscota was a very small town. And for lack of a better way of putting it, a, a not a technologically advanced town. Okay. You know, keep in mind, we're 1985. There aren't really cell phones. You know, there's no internet. There's no social media. Uh, there's not a lot of things in Muscota that would require identification of your presence. You know, it's a place where somebody could live, do things, be involved, but not really be, you know, of record or known. That became important in our trials, by the way. Uh, You know, because if you fast forward, especially to the second trial, the 1992, you know, you have some juries that are saying, okay, where were you? You know, identify, you know, show us where you were located, or at least we were assuming that you know, during the time period that you were allegedly at some of these meetings, you know, the meetings, uh, the conspiracy meetings we've talked about before. And again, if you're living in 1985 Muscota, there's not a lot of that evidence. There's not a lot of documentation available. Even phone records were hard to obtain and verify uh, and authenticate. Now, as I said, 
Um, they, there was regular travel by Mr. Zuno from Mexico into the United States and back and forth for a long period of time. Now, here's a couple of things that are fascinating. So, March 17, 1982, there is a DEA-6 signed by Agent Camarena and approved by Agent Kirkendall that says that um, on February 26th, Agent Camarena was um, advised that a Cessna 206 Stationair 2 um, had been observed at the Muscoda Airport with three of six seats removed. The owner information on that plane was requested by Agent Camarena, and he found out that it was registered to McKee Aviation out of San Antonio, uh, Texas, he later found out, or Camarena did, Agent Camarena, that the same aircraft had entered the United States through Texas on six different occasions since January 24, 1982. So six times in about a month-long period. All of these times, the pilot had been Ruben Zuno Arce. And it does note that Zuno Arce is of record with the DEA. Um, so it goes on to say that because Zuno RSA is of record with DEA and the plane was observed in Muscota, which is known as a marijuana and opium growing area, Zuno RSA and the plane were pa- placed on a Tex lookout. And a, a Tex lookout is the principal system used by officers at the border to assist with screening and determinations of admissibility. And this text um, alert also went to the FAA, so there was a lookout for Mr. Zuno and for this plane. Okay, so that's 1982. So, again, the idea that the DA had some interest in Mr. Zuno from times past, but now we have this, um, you know, this, this, uh, this lookout placed on him by Agent Camarena. Now, we fast forward to March of 1982, and it turns out that Mr. Zuno flew back in the United States, and when he arrived, his plane and his luggage were thoroughly searched uh, for narcotics, and nothing was found. All Results, it says, were negative. So, on March 13, 1982, Agent Camarena was notified of the results of that search. And thereafter, the FAA lookout and the uh, the Tex lookout were canceled. Okay? So, again... You got to look out because he's flying back and forth from uh, Muscoda or from areas that are known to be, uh, you know, from Jalisco, I guess. Yeah, so it's 
Oh, from Muscota. Yeah, from Muscota. Sorry. So, you know, because he's from Muscota, Jalisco's a, a you know that area has some some drug trafficking. Lookout placed ends up getting canceled, and when he's thoroughly searched, nothing happens. Now we've talked before about um, kind of the evolution of the perjury charges, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it here. But um, what really happened is Mr. Zuno was picked up as a material witness and testified in front of the grand jury. One of the questions in front of the grand jury was whether or not he had ever met Carl Quintero. Okay. And keep in mind, this is very, very, very different than what was said in Narcos Mexico. Okay. Have you ever seen Carl Quintero? Don't think I've ever met him. Thereafter, Lawrence Victor Harrison testifies and testifies to the grand jury that um, he had seen Mr. Zuno at a what's become known as the Dancing Horse Party, where uh, Carl Quintero and Zuno met, talked, were friendly, etc. Mr. Zuno was then indicted on perjury charges. He returned, um, was released and returned to Mexico. Mr. Bereas, in his book, makes a big deal about him coming back and how mad he was that he was walking the streets and free and he knew he was a bad guy. And so he made efforts to shock him and get him, you know, surprise him when he came back into San Antonio. All of that's bunk. Okay. His attorneys knew that he was going to be arrested when he came back. They advised him that he was likely to be arrested in connection with the Camarena case if he came back and it happened. Okay. And he was arrested, faced charges on conspiracy relating to Agent Camarena's abduction and murder. All right. Now we talked about the fact that he was involved in three trials or two trials. There's three in the U.S., but two that involved Mr. Zuno. Zuno one, as we like to talk, call it, um, began on May 15, 1990. Now these dates are going to be important. All right. This is the one with Mr. Zuno, Mata Ballesteros, and I've talked about my experience of sitting next to Mr. Mata. Uh, Juan Jose Bernabe Ramirez and Javier Vasquez Velasco. So those were the, the defendants in this case. So Zuno won this trial. Hector Cervantes Santos was the primary witness against Mr. Zuno. Cervantes was the first one to provide testimony of kind of conspiracy meetings and the involvement of Mexican officials. Okay. So case gets over and a new trial ends up being granted by Judge Rafiti in the district court. And the new trial was granted because the prosecution had referenced something in closing arguments um, a an issue that Zuno was denied from presenting evidence on. In short, Cervantes testified that the bodies had been buried, the bodies being that of Agent Camarena and Captain Zavala, had been ver- buried in La Primavera 
And he also went on to say that Don Rubin, Rubin Zunorase, owned it. And so they had to move the bodies because they didn't want Don Rubin to get into trouble. So in response to this testimony, Zuno's counsel tried to introduce a map of Primavera Park to counter some of Cervantes' testimony in essence to show that it was a public park, etc. So the district court looked at the evidence, uh, said that it was authenticated, agreed to admit the evidence, and then there were further discussions where the prosecution said, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. Cervantes wasn't referring to Primavera Park. He was referring to the town of La Primavera. And so this map of the park is irrelevant. And based on that, uh, the judge, Judge Rafiti, did not allow Zuno's counsel to introduce that map into evidence. On closing arguments, however... Mr. Madrano, AUSA Madrano, the prosecutor said, and I'm going to quote, the bodies were buried at La Primavera Park, and there was concern somehow that Zuno Arce might be implicated, close quote. And he later said, the bodies had to be taken out of La Primavera Park because it would cause trouble for Zuno Arce. And so... You know, the jury could have, based on that, considered Cervantes' testimony uh, in light of these arguments, but not had access to the defense exhibit that Zuno's counsel thought uh, rebutted in whole or in part Cervantes' testimony. Okay, now here's where it gets good. We've talked about this before, but I really, really want to make sure everybody's paying attention to this. New trial order was granted on May 10th, 1991. The government appealed the the new trial order to the Ninth Circuit. That case was argued on February 7, 1992 and decided on March 27, 1992. And the new trial order was affirmed, again, in the decision it's an unpublished decision, but an opinion dated March 27, 1992. Okay, so keep that, that date in mind. March 27, 1992. Let's talk about the witnesses against Ruben Zuno Arce in Zuno 2, which is coming up later in 92. Jorge Godoy was first interviewed by the DEA in Los Angeles on August 30, 1991. Okay. His initial meetings with the DEA continued through October of 1991. So September, October 1991, even so they, you know, they start September, October, November, December, you know, seven months, eight months before the new trial order is affirmed by the Ninth Circuit. In these first set of meetings, August to October 1991, he doesn't say Zuno was involved in the Camarena conspiracy, the meetings, nothing. But he does go through a 
um, a photo lineup or a deck of, of photographs and identifies Zuno and says, well, yeah, I know that him because he's kind of well-known in, in Jalisco. Apparently, after these October 1991 interviews, Godoy wasn't interviewed by the DEA again until April 7, 1992, less than two weeks after the Ninth Circuit affirmed the new trial order. Up until these April 1992 meetings, Eight months after he arrived in the United States, he had not said a word that implicated Zuno in any way. And keep in mind, Agent Breas knows this perfectly well. Mr. Madrano knows this perfectly well. A- Agent Breas knows it because he signed off on every single one of the DEA sixes relating to the interviews of Godoy and Lopez. Now, Lopez did not start talking to the DA until after Godoy had. As best we can tell, his first interview was in March of 1992. So that's after the Ninth Circuit arguments, but a week or so before the affirmance of the new trial order. Okay. Important. Lopez's initial interviews with the DA did not talk about Zuno at all. It wasn't until his fourth, four, one, two, three, four, his fourth meeting with the DA, which came after the Ninth Circuit ruled in favor of Zuno and affirmed the new trial order. It's not until that fourth meeting that Lopez began speaking of Zuno's alleged involvement in the conspiracy. Okay. Again, draw your own conclusions, but those dates are facts. Those dates we know for sure. Those are based on DEA six documents that you can find on the, on our website. Okay. Now we're going to want to talk a, a little bit about Zuno two. And some really, really important things about Zuno 2. All right. Now, keep in mind that um, Agent Kirkendall was called as a witness for the prosecution in this case. Okay. He was not called as a witness by the Zuno defense team. Okay. Before we talk about his test, uh, testimony, though, we want to k- talk about one other thing. And, and this will all make sense, I promise. So keep in mind, Agent Kirkendall knew about the text lookout from February of 1982. It's doubtful whether anybody else knew about it at the time, but Agent Kirkendall certainly did. In September 1986, September 29, 1986, um, Agent Kirkendall interviews uh, Ruben Zuno Arce at Jim's restaurant in San Antonio, Texas, 
and Agent Art Rodriguez is with him at the time. Okay. And the DEA 6 written by Agent Kirkendall says that the interview was really about uh, 881 Lope de Vega, his ownership of it. And um, we can testify, we can talk a little bit about Lope de Vega in a minute. But there's this interview with Zunor Arce in September of 1986. Okay. Now, we have the famous alleged testimony in favor of uh, Mr. Zuno. Okay. So again, we have the cross-examination. Cross-examination. That means Zuno's defense team did not call him as a witness. Right. He's already up there testified. He's testified. And then he's cross-examined. And I'm reading directly from the reporter's transcript of proceedings, Wednesday, December 2, 1992. Okay? Again, I'm not making stuff up. There are facts that and documents that support this. Here's exactly the testimony that Agent, Agent Kirkendall gave in relevant part. So, question. At any rate... Mr. Zuno, Zuno voluntarily came to Texas to see you. Answer, as far as I know. Question, and he met you and he answered the questions you asked of him. Answer, that is correct. Question, he didn't refuse to answer any questions. Answer, no, sir. Question, he didn't ask for any immunity before he answered your questions. Answer, no. Question, he didn't ask for a payment of any money before he answered your question. Answer, no, he did not. Question, didn't ask for relocation before he answered your questions. Answer, no. Question, whatever you asked him, he answered. Question, correct. Now, here's the big, here's the biggie. Okay. few pages later in the transcript, here's the question. And is it true, to the best of your knowledge, after your interview, there was no evidence that you knew of that Mr. Zuno was involved in the kidnapping of Enrique Camarena? Now, there's a long discussion uh, regarding this outside the presence of the jury, which we will talk about next time in part two. And that's going to be critical. But here's the, that's the question. It gets objected to. They, again, have this discussion off the record, and they come back on the record. Here's the question and the answer. Question. Mr. Kirkendall, you had no evidence that Mr. Zuno was involved in the kidnapping of Enrique Camarena after you completed his or your interview with Mr. Zuno. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Okay. So that's, the, that's what actually was said. Right? 
all that was said was that Mr. Kirkendall personally had no information that Mr. Zuno was involved. And keep in mind, at this point, again, Agent Kirkendall was no longer in Mexico, wasn't involved in Operation Landa, and that was asked of him, or wasn't directly involved in Operation Landa for the most part, and was not in charge of Operation Landa. And that part was brought up on cross uh, redirect by AUSA John Carlton. Now, if you've watched, if you've watched the last narc, there is the classic, and and I'm going to try not to be, I'm going to be fair here. I'm not going to be too snide, but there is the, the scene where Agent Brea says he and and AUSA Madrano get on the elevator after Kirkendall had testified and Medrano throws down his briefcase and says, Hector, you might as well pull out that gun and shoot me. We just lost this case. I got to tell you, I was in the courtroom that day. I had occasion to leave the courthouse, go back to our offices with the rest of the defense team, including Ed Medvin and Mary Fulginiti and, and James Blancarte. There wasn't one of us thinking we'd won the case. There wasn't one of us that thought that Agent Kirkendall had provided testimony on behalf of or for Ruben Zuno. He had answered very specific questions that had been put to him by a very good attorney on cross-examination. That's it. Now, as I said, I'm going to defer to part two when we're really talking about why do we care about Zuno and, and how does his situation fit into the totality of the circumstance. We're going to save that till part two, okay? So, um... Be on the lookout for that because it, it, it's interesting and you'll you'll like it. I promise. All right, Zuno two, Godoy and Lopez testify. We've talked about them a, a lot, but what's important is they contradict in many ways. Cervantes. I mean, things happen. They just both stories can't be right. Cervantes and Godoy and Lopez. Um. The primary witnesses against Zuno are Godoy and Lopez. And that's that's critically important. Again, when we go back to Mr. Medrano's statement that there was ample evidence to be sure that of Ruben Zuno Arce's guilt. It was Godoy and Lopez. And then Harrison testified. We've talked about some of his testimony. And as a preview of coming attractions... We are going to talk specifically in a full podcast about Lawrence Victor Harrison. But for our purposes today, he testified and actually said lots of good things for Zuno. We've already mentioned. He mentions two different meetings. He's got the dancing horse meeting and one other meeting where he says that he saw Zuno talking with 
uh, Caro Quintero and Ernesto Fonseca. That's it. He saw them talking. Doesn't talk about what they said, what they were talking about, how they knew each other. Nothing. Nothing at all. Okay. One of the other big issues in the trial of Zuno 2 was Lope de Vega. And I'm going to be perfectly candid with you. There are, um, I think, some reasonable questions about Lope de Vega. Reasonable questions in the sense that the evidence as presented probably could be viewed in more than one way. Now, Zuno Arce said that he received the property from his mother, the property where the main um, house is located at, uh, from his mom when he got married, that you know his family owned lots of property around Guadalajara. He gets married, gets this property. He then says a little bit later he purchased some adjacent property and built uh, a tennis court on that port part after he'd already built the house on at, at Lope de Vega. He then says that he leased Lope de Vega to Sergio Velasco from the end of 1978 or maybe the beginning of 1979 until May of 1984. He says he only slept in the house three or four times after May of 1984. He says that he, um, from May of 84 until the fall of 84, the house was being renovated because um, Velasco didn't leave it in great shape, he said. He then says, in December 1984, a friend came to him and said, hey, I know this guy, Dr. Ruben Sanchez Barba, who wants to buy your property. Zuno meets with Ruben Sanchez Barba. They enter into an agreement of some kind for the purchase of the house by Sanchez Barba and his brother. The transaction gets finalized, and I'll use that um, in air quotes, in front of a notary on January 9, 1985. Okay, that's Zuno's version of events. The government rebuttal essentially was that it was a sham transaction uh, and that Zuno owned Lope de Vega on February 7, February 8th, when Agent Camarena allegedly was there. I- I'm not sure at the end of the day just how important the ownership of Lope de Vega really is. Um, if the testimony of Godoy and Lopez is to believe to be believed, uh, then, you know, or if the, the, if the jury believed Godoy and Lopez ownership of Lope de Vega becomes largely irrelevant in my mind. Okay. So in some respects, it's a, uh, an, an issue that, that may not have really mattered to the jury at the time. Now we are going to talk sometime in the future, more specifically about Lope de Vega, some issues relating to Lope de Vega, some issues relating to the investigation of Lope de Vega, the investigation of Camarena's abduction and how they found Lope de Vega or came to know about Lope de Vega. Okay, so what have we done? Hopefully in the last 46 minutes or so, I haven't bored you completely. But what we've done is we've set up 
we now understand who Zuno was. We understand uh, his travel back and forth to the United States. We understand the the new trial order and why it was granted. Um, you know, and again, it was prosecutorial misconduct for you know what was said in the closing arguments. We've talked about Godoy and Lopez and the mystery of their mysterious timing of their recollection of Zuno Arce's alleged involvement in the Camarena conspiracy. We talked a little bit about Kirkendall's allegedly beneficial testimony and how it really wasn't. And and if you know, if you read the transcript, there's no way it, it was you know a life and death. Oh my God, shoot me, Hector, because we've lost the case type of situation. Um, and we've also talked a little bit about Harrison and Lope de Vega. All right. Next week, next week, we're going to talk about three principal things. Maybe four. So we're going to talk about the post-conviction appeals and issues raised by Zuno, not, again, not to suggest that you should believe that Zuno was innocent, not even to suggest that the appeals were decided wrongly, simply to raise issues that are important now, 35 years later, looking back on the case, okay? So we're going to look at those issues. We're going to look and and talk in detail about why Zuno's story is important, why it relates directly to the U.S. government's fascination with finding involvement of Mexican officials, why it's a classic example of government overreach, and you know, in part, we're going to talk about Cervantes and his recantations we've talked about. We're going to talk about the irreconcilable differences in the cases. And we're going to talk about Godoy and Lopez and the vetting process. And we're also going to talk in great detail about this whole process of bringing up a large number of witnesses, probably paying a large number of witnesses, and having to testify. Okay. And then the last thing we're going to talk about is we're going to rebut and put a nail in the coffin of this whole idea that you know Kirkendall was testifying for the defense and somehow it was uh you know this great shock to the prosecution and to Mr. Madrano and we're going to talk about and look, listen to Madrano's own words from the transcript. Okay. So that's preview of coming attractions. Mr. Zuno, who was he? We've talked about that today. Next week, we're going to talk about why he's important. I thank everybody for spending some time on this today. I hope you come back for the next one. I hope you have a great 4th of July weekend, and we will talk to you next week. Take care.